Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Well, hey there, Impact Makers. I want to thank you for joining me on another episode of the Impact Makers Podcast, where each week I share valuable information, tips, and resources to help you create a career that you love and a life that matters. This week, I'm excited to share a conversation with you that I have with my friend, William Tencup. Now, from the name alone, you're probably thinking that this guy might be a little different, and you would not be wrong. Different is only one of the ways that I would describe William Tencup. I'd also use words like genuine, unique, authentic, connector, helpful, giver, and one of my favorite shades of tin cup, the family man. He's all of those things and much more, and he's been a consistent and prominent presence at the intersection of HR, marketing, branding, and technology for many years. I don't remember exactly when I first came across William Tincup, but it probably was sometime around 2009 when I attended my first industry conference and began to actually meet in person some of the interesting people that I'd, quote, met online through their writing and social media posts. You know, back in the day when Twitter was fun and, and of course, we all walked uphill in the snow both ways to go to school. At that time, he was the public face and the head mix master of the creative Molotov cocktail called Star Tincup. Star Tin Cup was a company that William had founded in Fort Worth, Texas in 2005, along with his business partner, Brett Starr. Together, they built a successful marketing agency that was primarily focused on providing services to vendors in the human capital space. And I'll just say it, they were not normal. William Tin Cup is not someone that can be labeled normal, and that, of course, meant that Star Tin Cup was never destined to be a, quote, normal marketing agency. You either loved them or you hated them. You either felt they were brilliant or they were appalling, and that was exactly what they wanted. Star Tin Cup stood out in an industry known for being boring and stale, and they prided themselves on being brilliant marketers who were wired to rage against the machine. They quickly became known for telling clients what they needed to know and not what they wanted to hear in order to stand out in a crowded space. In 2010, William stepped away from the agency business and ventured out on his own. Combining his unique viewpoint at the intersection of human resources and technology, along with his decades of industry experience and his reputation for telling it like his is, he's built a successful career as a prolific writer, speaker, advisor, consultant, investor, storyteller, and teacher. He's also the current president of RecruitingDaily.com. William just doesn't do anything like anyone else does, literally. It's rare to find someone who marches to the beat of their own drum that in some way isn't doing that for someone else's attention or benefit. But after knowing William for over a decade, I can assure you that he truly doesn't care at all what you or I think. But he's also constantly curious and is always learning and observing. And I love him for that. Our mutual friend, Bill Borman, described William perfectly in a spotlight post on his blog a few years ago. He is both unique and original and anything but ordinary. I think you'll get a lot from our conversation today, regardless of what industry you work in or the profession that you've chosen. William shares some great career and life advice that you probably won't hear anywhere else. I hope you enjoy my conversation today with William Tincup. Well, thank you, William Tincup, for joining me today. As I said, and kind of the chatting we did before we started recording this episode, uh, I'm 
I do believe you're probably one of the most interesting men in the world. The Dos Equis guy has nothing on you. Do you ever get told that? You know, I think it's usually by people that don't have a lot of friends or, uh, or they don't get out much. Just, well, just, just kidding. I, yeah. uh, As I said, it's high quality circle, small circle. <laughs> <laughs> very small circle, very small circle. I think some of it's uh, the high candor uh, in which I operate. Um, I think that's, I think to some degree, I think that's interesting to people because they don't, or they can't, you know, I have good friends, um, in corporate jobs that can't speak freely Mm -hmm. and I've never really understood that. Um, and I guess some of that's because I've always put myself in situations where I speak freely. So that's interesting. I think on a, on a kind of a visceral level, uh, for folks because they can't do it. So it seems interesting. It's, I don't, I don't know if it's that interesting or if it's just that they can't do it. Well, that's, I think, a great way that that phrase that you use there to, to describe you. And, and maybe I'll use that if people ask me in the future. High candor. You are a person <laughs> of high candor. And, and I hope that uh, we'll, we'll have some of that in our conversation today. And um, I mentioned to you earlier, I kind of just went back and um, Googled William Tincup. And first of all, we have to say I'm super jealous because I don't know. Is there actually another William Tincup out there? There is. There's an older gentleman. Um, my my the tin cups were in northern uh, Oklahoma during okay. the during the well they came over from the Trail of Tears mm-hmm. and uh, and during the Dust Bowl that kind of the Grapes of Wrath era mm-hmm. uh, half of the tin cups went out to California. Okay. And so you got kind of two groups of tin cups. You've got well three technically because you got some people that didn't make the Trail of Tears in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Then you have people in Tulsa. Or in you know northeastern Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and then you've got people in California. So there is an older man named William Tincup, and he's he's on the branch uh, of Tincups that that I belong to. But he's I think a generation older. I think he's either of my dad's age or just a little younger. Well, it's interesting. He obviously doesn't have an, an internet presence because I I have never. Googled someone that I paged through the first 10 pages of results and it was a hundred percent you. Now that is something that is an achievement to be proud of. Now, number one, you have a unique name. Number two, you right. obviously produced right. a ton of content and I could have kept going, I'm sure. And it would still be you. Um, but that's so, something to be like, you should put that like there, are, there's no other. <laughs> well, here's the interesting, th- uh, one of the more interesting things is there, there's a, there's a type of whiskey called a uh, 10 cup whiskey and it's owned by Proximo Spirits that owns Jose Cuervo and Three Olives and a couple other brands. And it was a small whiskey distillery. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually kind of a high rye. It's really, it's, I mean, for me, if you like whiskey, it's a good whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I own tincup.com, and I bought it years ago, back, oh, probably 03, 04. Uh, and spent a lot of money buying it. And, uh, and they want to buy it. And they've wanted to buy it for about three or four years now. Mm-hmm. And they're, this is a company that's doing ad- advertising, not necessarily Super Bowl ads, but they're doing a lot of advertising. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I hope they do really well. Because <laughs> You're holding out. <laughs> I am. I am. I, I, 
I Googled tinkup.com before we chatted and, and I'm sure that they are extremely distressed that it redirects to your Twitter profile at it this does, point. <laughs> I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that. I'm actually going to redirect it to my Instagram account. Just <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the thing is, is there isn't that much, you know, there's a band called Tin Cup, um, kind of a heavy, heavy metal and rap uh, band called Tin Cup. Um, and there's not that many people with mm-hmm. the last name of Tin Cup. So, you know, if my name was Smith uh, or Baker. It'd be harder. It'd be harder. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know how people do it. Yeah. Um, well, and, you've kind of like, you know, you've mentioned several things that, that you know, a very small piece of what makes up the, the William Tin Cup. Um, and you've already mentioned several interesting things and obviously uh, lots of things associated with your name. But maybe take me back as far as you would like, kind of. How did the William Tinkup story start? You mentioned Trail of Tears, and I know um, you have a passion for American Indian studies, et cetera. Sure. So, so I'd love to hear a little bit about that as well, kind of your history. So we've got kind of an Ellis Island story. My grandmother, uh, during the World War II, um, was married to uh, Joe Tinkup, my, my grandfather, mm-hmm. and they had four kids. And uh, he was a raging alcoholic. And uh, wouldn't get a job. So um, she put him on a bus, literally put him on a bus and sent him back up to, uh, to Oklahoma. And they, they, they didn't divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but she couldn't get a job in Central Texas. Central Texas being kind of like your Waco, Temple, Belton, Colleen area. Um, she couldn't get a job in the 40s with an Indian last name. Hmm. Is that prejudice, right? Yeah. So, uh, so she at one point dated a guy named Davenport, and uh, she started going by uh, was she started going by Davenport, and then she started calling the kids Davenport. Yet, never changed any of their birth certificates. Okay. So my dad's birth certificate is William Everett Tincup, and my grand, my uh, aunts Dorothy Tincup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yet they all went by Davenport for years. And so growing up, I, uh, all the way through high school and into the beginning of my college, I, my name was Jeffrey William Davenport. No, I didn't know this about you. Right. So at one point, uh, I think it was 92, 93, I just decided, you know, my name, Davenport means nothing. You know, there is no meaning associated other than this Ellis Island story, if you will, of, of changing your name to kind of pass. So uh, I legally changed my name to Jeffrey William Tinko. And, uh, and, and so my brothers are still named Davenport because they're all five and six years older than me. And they'd already been into their careers. And, you know, to be, it would have been a little bit harder you know, for them, it would have been a little bit harder for my dad. But, you know, there's there's just – it's one of those deals I felt strongly about it at the time. I still do. That, you know, Tin Cup goes back. Yeah. It uh, goes back several generations. Um, and it and it actually does mean something. Whereas uh, the name Davenport had absolutely no meaning. So the family tree is of three sorts. Wow. Now, what uh, of what Native American tribe is Tin Cup? Cherokee. Cherokee, Western Cherokee. So we came over Mouse, Tin Cup, I could make this up, and his wife and James Yellowbird, uh, Tin Cup, their son, they went on the Trail of Tears, 
<laughs> and uh, 30 years later, joined the Union Army in the Civil War to fight in Oklahoma against other Indian tribes. So, so the rest of my family, so my mom's side is, it contracts back all the way back to the first hundred families to, to settle Virginia. So Jamestown society. So that's, so plantation, slave ownership, you know, just name it 1621. They came over, you know, on a boat from London, you know, in 1621 to help settle Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia. So, you know, I've got all of that. And those folks fought in every war. All of them. <laughs> every, every, every war, like Spanish, uh, the, you know, obviously the Civil War, the American Revolution, like every single war. And then on uh, my dad's mother's side, they settled Texas. So the Battle of San Jacinto, you know, one of my ancestors killed 21 Mexican nationals, you know, with a machete and, and got 6,000 acres for his, his work in that militia, if you will, but it was for the Republic of Texas. So that was our, you know, the, the Alamo is what most people remember, but, uh, but it all, to start, it all started and kind of ended with about six different battles. It's amazing that you have so much history about your family that, that um, oh, yeah. you can ha have, but to share with your boys. Oh yeah. No, it's great. And we're, you know, we're all, you know, sons of the American revolution and sons of the confederacy. And, and, uh, and it's interesting. Um, you know, I mean, history is just one of those things that you can't pick where you come from. You can't pick your ancestors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that's just, you know, that's just one of those things in life. They are who they are, but they also, they can, there's parts of their stories that can be kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, you went on, you know, obviously growing up with all of that uh, history, and then you, I think, are one of the most educated people that I know, um, multiple degrees. First one in what photography, art, art history. I, mean, I memorized twelve thousand works of art, and uh, and the funny story there is when I went to Bama, um, the career advice. This was ninety one. The career, uh, yeah, I went through kind of the. I got in state tuition. Mm -hmm. That's the funniest story in the world. So I I moved over to live back with my parents. I'd been out on my own for about four or five years. I moved back in with my parents to go to college, which I was never a good student. In fact, barely graduated high school. And, uh, and, and, and so I go to sign up for school at Alabama and I'm standing in line at the registrar's office. And uh, the lady that was checking me in, uh, I looked at her and she had these really, really, really cool earrings. And I go, you know, those are really cool earrings. Those are gorgeous. Where'd you get those? She's, told me where she got them. I said, man, I'd like to get some of those for my mother. Those are really great. And then she said, well, are you, uh, you in-state or out-of-state? I said, oh, I'm definitely in-state. And I had to show her my library card, my driver's license. She's like, okay, great. <laughs> like, that was it. I got in-state tuition. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I got in-state tuition at Alabama because, uh, because I, and I meant it. I mean, it was sincere. I, I really liked her earrings. But it took her off from... I think from asking some of the other probative questions she was supposed to. But so anyhow, so I sat down with a career advisor and a career advisor said, listen, one in 20, one in four, 25% work in your major. So my advice to you is what are you good at? What do you like? What do you find interesting? Because you have literally a 25% chance of working in that major. 
And I said, well, I've always painted. I've always been, you know, I've always been an artist. And so she goes, go do art. I, I said, okay, cool, great. So I went and did art and uh, art studio. So photography and, and sculpture and painting and all of that stuff. But it, the art history part was the, was what was most fascinating. Because oh, I think that, that is but, great advice. It's just still very relevant today. Yeah. Right. Just do, you know, first of all, you know, the, there was no practical applications for a degree in art history. But uh, unless you want to be a curator of a museum, which is what I thought I wanted to be. So I go into that degree and then I get towards the end of the degree and I say, you know what? I think I really want to be a curator of a museum. And so my wife wanted to pursue a master's in landscape architecture. And I got a, wanted to pursue a master's in American Indian studies at the, the University of Arizona in Tucson. So we get married and we go out there to the desert and there's nobody around us. It's just us and, you know, 60,000 students at the university. And, um, and I did a bunch of internships at the Smithsonian during the summers. And uh, at one point, I realized that curators of museums don't make a lot of money. <laughs> you got pretty far into it before you realized yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that was before the Internet was really kind of a thing. And uh, that would have, uh, I mean, you know, I loved it. I had a really good time. I learned, you know, I can, I can tell you that most of my conversations today go back on some level to art or history. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on to do an MBA afterwards because I figured, you know, I have to, I have to button up these, these arts degrees with something that society deems, you know, relevant. So I went and did an MBA, uh, in Cleveland at Case Western and I loved the experience, but it was essentially common sense. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, it's a good degree. I, I would tell people now, if they don't take two years off your life, do it part-time. If you're going to stay in the area, do it at night, do it with, you know, learn, network, you know, do all that stuff. It'll take five years, but you'll, you'll also progress your career while you're doing it. You can possibly get it reimbursed. Um, that's how I would do the MBA today. Mm-hmm. If, if I were to, if I were to do it, but you know, what's funny, Jennifer is people typically, and, and it's just the bias of people that, that we have a group of degrees, people look at the MBA and they're impressed with the MBA. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like the MBA, I could have closed my eyes for most of the MBA and still been a, you know, an A plus student, mm-hmm. but memorizing, you know, 12,000 works of art from the history of the world. Yeah. You, you can't fall asleep and do that. You can't close your eyes and do that. Yeah. You have to actually, you know, prepare. So when you, you were um, working in the museums and realized that that was not ultimately going to be a uh, viable career path. What, what was your plan at that point with getting the MBA? Did, did you then think, well, I'm going to go do what? So typically at that era, um, you really have kind of three things going on. And a lot of schools were all kind of, I would tell you a lot of the, let's say the top 50 MBA programs they're all very similar. The networks are different. Harvard's network versus um, Carnegie Mellon's network is different. But the, but the curricula is uh, essentially the same. You know, the, you're, different, you're with different people, um, and you have a different network, but the curriculum is very similar. Okay. So uh, at that time, you really had three paths. You had the path of consulting. 
uh, and which, you know, that goes to Ian Wine, Deloitte, and Captain Gemini, and all these other characters, Booz Allen. Or you have the pathway to uh, Wall Street, um, and that's investment banking mostly. Um, and then you have the path to entrepreneurship. And that's usually gals and guys that kind of come in with an idea and they use the MBA experience to kind of flesh out the idea, build a team, and then go to market. When I first started business school, I thought I wanted to be a consultant. And uh, I, it, what I learned about consulting is, 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 you know, and again, I've been a consultant since, but what I learned about consulting is that you drop in and give people advice. You solve a problem. You tell them what's right, what's wrong, here's how to fix it, and then you leave. Yeah. You don't really have to do the work, generally speaking. You don't have to do the work. And that can be a good thing because there's a lot of, you know, politics and chemistry and people issues and all kinds of muck that gets in the way. Uh, but it can also kind of wear on your soul. Because you can give people great advice and they don't have to take it. Mm-hmm. In fact, they, they paid to get your advice, not to, not to take your advice. So, uh, so, so consulting can be – investment banking was right out because I didn't want to go to New York or Chicago. And I didn't really want to live that life. Like I wasn't motivated by Gordon Gecko or Boiler Room or the Wolf of Wall Street or any of those types of things. So I really wasn't hardwired that way. Like I wanted to stay married, you know, I, I didn't want to <laughs> work nice goal. <laughs> 140 hours a week. Yeah. Little, little things. Um, consulting would have put me on the road a little bit, a little bit more, but it was doable. But I had to deal with the fact that, that, that delicate back of giving people advice and then dealing with the fact that they don't take the advice. Mm-hmm. So in my last semester after, uh, uh, I, you know, I'd already been there a year and a half last semester. I make the decision to do entrepreneurship. And so when I came out, we moved back to Texas and I interviewed with, you know, 24, six different firms, whittled it down to two, picked one, did that for 18 months and learned, you know, what to and what not to do mm-hmm. in a business. And then from there, started my own business. And that business was... That business was eventually what became you know, Star Tin Cup or the Star Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So, so you started uh, into marketing kind of right away, or started right away, right mm-hmm. away. It was marketing's always been relatively easy, um, at least intellectually, uh, very easy for me. So, um, and again, that the first, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have enough. I say confidence. Um, I, I couldn't start the business right out of business school. Had I had I attended business school with the intent to have a business when I left, I would have had a business when I left. Mm-hmm. But I changed. Like I literally went through this metamorphosis of I want to be a consultant, want to be a consultant, want to be a consultant. No, I don't really want to be a consultant. No, I don't want to be a consultant. I want to be an entrepreneur. And in doing so, um, I had to go work with somebody else. And it was the dot-com era. So, you know, raising money, blowing through money, making bad decisions, bad hires, bad HR, bad this, bad that. Like making all of those mistakes essentially became the proving ground for me for, you know, what to do in a business and what not to do in a business. Sure. 
Well, I actually, I came across your path and I don't know exactly when, but it probably would have been 2008, 9, 10 timeframe, obviously, when you're um, with Star 10 Cup and certainly uh, probably came across you because you guys did things differently. You, you, not your mama's marketing <laughs> firm. Um, so was that always, you know, how did you start out? Was it, I want to go in and be completely the antithesis of what traditional marketing firms are like, or did it evolve to that? It had to evolve to that because when we started, um, we didn't really start with HR and recruiting in mind. We started with basically a B2B marketing you could be an architecture firm or ranch style beans or TCU or whomever. But at one point, Brett and I realized that where we were the most successful, where we were the most profitable, uh, where we were the happiest uh, was, was with this little bitty sector called, you know, HR software. And at the time we had a number of clients there and, and we were doing really well there. So we said, well, why don't we just focus the business on that? And uh, kind of a radical idea at the time, because we basically said, yeah, we'll still take all that other business. So if Ranch Style Beans, you know, or Dickies or uh, somebody like that comes to us and says, hey, we want you to rebuild our website. Well, we'll rebuild the website. We'll take the money. But we're not going to advertise and market to them. So we re repositioned the firm in about 06 to just go after recruiting and HR, people that sell to mm -hmm. the positions of recruiting and HR. So at the time, you really only have two other players in the market. So it's a really shallow market uh, from an advertising, PR, marketing perspective. You have HR marketer, uh, Mark Williman, and you have the Devon Group and Gina Kelly. And both Mark, if you were to look at Mark and Gene at the time, both of them are more very conservative. And very much buttoned up, sweater vests is what I, is what I'd call them. They, they were sweater vest people, so we couldn't compete and or out compete them in the sweater vest business. <laughs> so first of all, that wasn't our style. I didn't talk like that. You you know you you know how I normally talk. So I didn't talk like that. I didn't act like that. I didn't have that behavior. I wasn't that person. So we were young. And we uh, had a lot of young people working at our firm. And so we had to go the opposite direction. It's kind of like game theory. If everyone's, if they're occupying this position of conservative sweater vest, et cetera, then you can't go where they are. You have to go where they're not. Mm -hmm. so, so we went the opposite direction and, and, and to the extreme. And so, you know, stripper glitter and alcohol and cocaine references became essentially normal. <laughs> because stripper glitter. Was that on the, like the tagline? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, that was, that became normal and showing up to business meetings, you know, with ashes, you know, or, you know, on your clothes or stuff like that was normal. It was a kind of a part of the shtick. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, we came to people and said, if you, if you want to innovate, you've got to get people to, that, that are innovative to innovate for you. Can people in sweater vests innovate? That's, that's basically the question we're going to ask you. Can these two groups of people innovate? Because if, if you want safe, if you want conservative, why are we even talking? Mm -hmm. like we're, we're obviously not that group of people. Now, if you want things to blow up, 
Now, we're that group of people. We will throw some things against the wall, and things are going to blow up. Now, they might blow up in the right way, and they could possibly blow up in the wrong way, but they are definitely going to blow up. <laughs> and so we, uh, we, we marketed, and we lived that life, too, is, is Led Zeppelin. Like we, we lived that life. Um, we drank like that. We ate like that. We lived like that. We rolled like that. And some people like that. Because they understood the, the bit. Like even marketers would kind of get the bit. Like they'd understand it and go, oh, yeah, okay, I see what you are doing. Mm-hmm. And, and some people didn't. And they were offended. And so when we wrote a book, uh, and it was trying not to F this up, it was essentially our attempt of saying, here's all the best practices in B2B marketing in HR software and services. If you just do this, literally chapter one to 30, if you do this, you don't need to call us. Mm-hmm. And that was the title of the book is A Flaming Bag of Poo. And I actually, um, I cleaned out my bookcases this last weekend, and I have that book still. <laughs> and it is a very good book still to this day. It has lots of great advice. I just have very common sense kind of marketing. That's all it is. And, and you know what? When we were, we were at uh, Sherm, the, when you, when you remember uh, Sherm Annual when it was in New Orleans 100 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when we came up with the title. Okay. We're just like, we're going to give the people the keys to the kingdom. They don't have to call us. If they just, if they could just not F this up, uh, then they don't have to call us. Um, I had people, funny story about one, one funny story about the book is I was walking through HR tech one year. It was the year I think we published. We drop shipped it to like 20,000 people. It was crazy. So I had this one guy, um, literally I'm walking down one of the aisles and he throws the book and it hits my chest. And then I kind of froze. I didn't know what to do. And so I just kind of stepped over it and kept walking. (laughs) Right. So it was the president of Rideau software. And he calls me a couple weeks later. He's like, Hey man, like WTF, what, what I, you know, I want you to autograph my book. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I, I, I didn't know what you wanted. <laughs> so I left. <laughs> so I just walked away so that we didn't get into a fight. I, I didn't know that you wanted an autograph. But, uh, but, but it is a kind of an odd thing when you write a book. And, the, the, I could t- and I've told other authors this. When you write a book, the weirdest, most surreal moment is when someone asks for your autograph. Yeah. Well, he, I, I say, yeah, like I know. No, I haven't written no, a book. I wouldn't know. <laughs> but, but, but it's 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 sublime because you know you don't you don't think you're worthy on on one level, and and you don't know what to write. Like like I remember being at a URE, and uh, a gal came up to me, and she was just super sweet, and I I, I still know her to this day. And she said, "Hey, I, I you know opened her open the book and up." She's handed me a, a sharpie. She says, I want you to autograph my book. I, Jennifer, I had, I, I still, to this day, I froze. I had no idea what to do. Like, do I make it out to her? Do I spell her name? Do I say, thanks for reading? Like all I did was sign my name. Like literally like, like this, <laughs> J. William Tinka. <laughs> and I'm out. And like, that, is, that is a collector's item to this yeah, day, I'm sure. Yeah, probably not. It's sold on eBay uh, very cheaply, I would, I would add. But, but, you know, it's, it's just kind of funny that this kind of a HR, what we call HR famous. Um, I, I tell people that, that notoriety that, that comes with whatever 
it, it's it's kind of a weird thing and you don't know no one knows how to manage it at first and i don't think you ever really get super comfortable you know with with that mm-hmm. um that 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 part because i still like people don't ask because i, I don't write as much and I, de- I definitely don't put books together but but i i still remember that that, that was like oh eight i mean is that long ago and i still remember like i can still remember in the hotel in the lobby where I was sitting when she asked me, I can still remember to that detail. That's amazing. And I think, as you said, you guys um, very quickly kind of made a name for yourselves <laughs> for being very different. And that worked. I mean, it worked for a number of years. Uh, companies that wanted a different approach, that wanted right. people that think differently. But at the, you know, at the end of the day, you guys did good work too. But in looking at your LinkedIn profile, um, I like this line from there, from your summary. It says, I'm surely not everyone's cup of tea because I think fast, I talk fast, I curse way more than I should, but I'll walk through walls for the firms and entrepreneurs I advise. I'm loyal like that. So at the heart of it, I think that was ultimately what really separated you guys, right? You did good work. You were very loyal. You brought interesting strategies to your clients and that got you pretty far, right? It's, it's, uh, it's what we know about employer brand uh, today. Employer brand is not just to attract. Uh, a great employer brand uh, both attracts and repels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the strategy that we had to implore because of where Gene and Mark had positioned themselves. And, and I'm friends with both of them. And, and I've, even, I've even told this story to both of them, that I had to position the firm opposite of, I would actually go into meetings and call you sweaters best, <laughs> you know, because I had to position you in kind of an ultra conservative, I can't innovate box. And, uh, you know, that's, that's how I had to, that's how I had to position them. We're friends now. Um, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was always friends with both of them, but I mean, cause I never wanted to do PR. Um, but it's, it's one of those things we, I would tell you, we lost business, you know, and I, I've told, you know, I've, I've told my sons this too, cause you know, I think it was about two years ago, my oldest asked me, uh, they were going to bed. Both of them were sleeping together and they were going to bed. And Henry asked me, uh, dad, why do you, why do you curse when you're, you know, when you're talking to people on the, on your, you know, your calls? I said, well, that's a great question. Um, and you know, the best answer I can give you is I curse because I can, <laughs> and, and, you know, that didn't really, that didn't stop there. I said, and, and it's cost me money. It's cost me friends. It's cost me money. It's cost me, you know, relationships. It's cost me business uh, because some people just don't like cursing and they, they don't appreciate it in business. Um, and uh, and then there's also just certain words that they don't like, etc. And, and I'm I'm not built that way. I I've always cursed, and it's just a part of my language. I have to actually really think about not cursing. Mm-hmm. for it to not happen um, because it just kind of <laughs> flies out of my mouth. But I, you know, I told him that, Hey, there's risk, risk and reward. The people that, that love me, that know that I might occasionally, you know, drop some words that are, you know, a little bit unsavory. They, they look past it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, that's not why they like me. They, they just kind of look past it and just accept that's a part of, you know, a character flaw that I have. Um, and then, and equally as much, there's people out there that that can't get past it and won't get past it, and they'll they'll never get past it. And so, I think that's also kind of in line with that employer brand. So what we did at Star Ten Cup, um, we did purposely with great thought. I would tell you because we were positioned against very conservative people. There was only one way to one play to make right with my brand. I, I decided to just extend that and, and to continue to be me. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, that one gear is a great gear because it's the same gear at a soccer game as it is at a, a church outing. As it is at the bar, as it is, uh, you know, uh, you know, smoking cigars, you know, you know, on, on some type of boat. You know, it's the same guy. There's well, no. I, I think I I heard um, an interview that you did with a former business partner of yours at one point where you kind of talked about this, you know, the language and how it, mm-hmm. you know, some people. Uh, it gravitates some people to you and it repels some people away from you. But I, I, at that time you explained it, I think in a way that, that really resonated with me for you said that it, it kind of, in some cases you have to use that language to throw people off uh, to, to get them to think differently. And I think if you saw the Netflix documentary on Tony Robbins, the I'm not your guru, he kind of, you know, like a lot of people mentioned the language that he used in there. And I was surprised too. Um, But he says in there, I, I use that to interrupt the pattern. That's right. Um, so with you, I don't think it's you know necessarily intentional that you're doing that, but in some yeah. cases, that's that's sometimes a benefit. Is that correct? For, for a while, I would uh, during every during every first kind of when I was proposing business to somebody, and we knew each other but didn't know each other. When I was proposing business, I was selling. I'd I'd always curse, like I'd I'd literally kind of write it down to drop something just to see how they reacted. And, and the reason I would do that is, is a relationship that you have in consulting and marketing is there's going to be some hiccups. There's going to be kind of a missed uh, meeting or a missed deadline or a call that didn't happen. You know, that's just life. There's an inevitable ish disaster. And you have to know that the person's kind of got your back. And, uh, and so I would do that just to see, is this a person that's going to have my back when I make a mistake or when they have a mistake, you know, is this a person that I'm going to take care of when, you know, when, when they don't do something well mm-hmm. and I have to kind of cover them, uh, and, and take care of them. And so I would do that for years. I would do that. I would literally get on a sales call and, you know, just rattling on through the bit, you know, talking about the industry and, and and then I would just mix something in purposely just to see, huh, how did they, how they, how they handle that? And, uh, like I was doing the sales kickoffs for the, uh, uh, the Zenefits team and, uh, the leader there curses more than I did. (laughs) Okay, but I did like the opening kind of keynote talking about the industry bit. And and just during, first of all, it was really inappropriate because I was talking about this diversity and using memes and humor as a way to do diversity hiring. And so doing all kinds of inappropriate stuff before I even got started. And then I started cursing. It's like 8.30 in the morning. 
And I looked over at him at one point. I'm like, I, you know, I'm so sorry. He goes, oh, no, keep going. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you're in the right place. You're yeah. in the right. You, you've, you've hit the right audience with the right message. You're doing fine. Now, that could have blown up in my hands. Mm-hmm. You know, that could have easily just, I mean, not just not worked. I mean, not worked to the tune of them just stopping me and asking me to leave. Right. So, um, you know, that's, that was the explanation. That was the, that was the talk I, I gave to my sons. I'm like, listen, it's your choice. How you talk, the way you talk, the words you use, you know, they, they all come, those choices all come with consequences. Mm-hmm. And well, again, you saw a lot of success and, you know, again, success maybe in the right way with right. the right people that were a good fit for you. And then, then there was a point, and I don't remember exactly what year, where you you kind of um, you had your Jerry Maguire moment, I guess, so to speak. You, you wrote your your manifesto. You you got out of the the Star Kid Cup business, sold that to your partner, mm-hmm. um, and then you've been on a kind of a a different and varied path since then. Is is there anything kind of in that process that that um, that makes sense? to the rest of us as to why you were, you were really successful, you know, why you kind of got off the train. Why would I leave Led Zeppelin? Um, So the advertising world, the services world in general, so uh, PR, marketing, advertising, interactive, you know, those worlds where you serve a customer uh, in a services capacity. Um, After doing it for a decade, I, the thing that, the thing that got to me, was um, people not saying thank you. Hmm. Like like just the rudeness. Like I get it, you're paying us a lot of money. Okay, so maybe that's the thank you. Yeah, that's not enough anymore. Um, not, not for me. Like, like I remember, you know, we went into a scenario where this company had struggled to rebrand for three, four years. Brett rebrands them within six months before a major trade show redoes their entire re- re- logo, tagline, website, you know, the, the booth, the trade show, the whole bit. And, and they paid us a lot of money. And then literally 30 days later, the CEO calls and says, okay, now uh, what do we need to do about this retainer? And I thought to myself, how ungrateful could you be? I mean, there's a level of ungratefulness, like there's a pathway to hell. Uh, of ungratefulness and and it's it's just I thought to myself I can't continue to be in a business where people don't say thank you like like acknowledge I get I, again we're getting paid kind of you know it's it's in, in a way it's like prostitution but you know similar but different we're getting paid to do a service you do the service that's that's your thank you but every once in a while it would be nice for the person to acknowledge hey that was awesome. Thank you. Just, yeah. it doesn't have to happen every time. Just occasionally it would have been great. So after 10 years of that not happening, I just had to get out. Mm-hmm. And Brett, you know, threw, threw me the, the, the life preserver of a world. I mean, you know, damn near a million dollars to buy out my equity and let me have some time to go explore the world and go find out what I wanted to do next. And I wanted to do user adoption uh, consulting for vendors. And so that's what I did initially. And, uh, I was, 
probably five, six years too early with what I was doing. But I, I did it with some really cool vendors, consulted with them on, okay, this, you know, you just sold the software. Now what do you do? How do you get people to use it? That was fun. And then uh, Sumzer and I started consulting uh, together, which was a lot of fun. And then he and I built Key Interval. And uh, we both learned simultaneously that research is really difficult to sell. Uh, so we both went back to consulting. <laughs> um, because But people would buy, they wouldn't buy the research, but they would buy John and I in a room. Right. So again, with the weirdest thing in the, kind of the world to me is like, we're, we're putting together really, really, really good research, you know, on user adoption and, you know, on implementations and really John's an eloquent writer and, and, uh, and just the research was really gorgeous. The reports were amazing. And people were like, yeah, we just want you two to come up here and uh, consult with us for a couple of days. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, so after that, um, the, uh, the guys at recruiting daily actually called and said, Hey, we want to, we want to grow the business. We, we don't really necessarily know how. So we're, we're thinking about X, Y, and Z. So I came in as a consultant to basically build their unconference business. Uh, kind of like what Bill Borman does, but, but a little bit, a little bit different actually. So for the last two years, that's what we, that's what I've been building. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I'm learning the media business, which by the way, is, it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, uh, just the changes that happen in media, but, 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 you know, recruiting daily has also been, I think equally fun, um, uh, you know, because I still get to interact with the vendor community that I've been interacting with for 20 years. Yeah. It's the same people. Well, like, and I, I think, you know, even while you were at Star 10 Cup and then certainly since then, and, and that's why when I Google your name and I go through the first 10 pages of results, it's all you. You have, you you mentioned that John Sumser is a great writer. You are a great writer and you bring to that uh, um, almost always your, your radical candor kind of approach. Um, sometimes with your, your language that you choose to use, depending on what outlet you're, you're writing for. But, but there's a ton of content out there where you have really, you know, we talk about people who are thought leaders and a lot of people don't, you know, like that label or want to wear it. But that I think is a good way to describe you as a thought leader in your industry. And so if someone approaches you, you gave some great advice, I think for anyone who's considering like an MBA, um, your advisor gave you great advice on your education, Mm -hmm. you know, for a person who is, in their career, in their life, wanting to make an impact, and whether that's through gaining thought leadership or, or being seen um, as having expertise, is that the best path to create content, to have an opinion, to share it? Well, it's it's uh, it's yes, yes. Okay, so thought leadership is about actually being a leader, and most of what most of what we have in HR and recruiting is thought followership. Uh, I, I read somewhere on somebody else's blog about this one thing and here's what I would do. And it's a little bit like that, but you know, sub kind of different. Well, that's, that's not thought leadership. That's essentially taking someone else's idea and repurposing it and packaging it up and putting it out as your own. True thought leadership is actually making people think, uh, trying, and it's actually the ability to make people think differently than they did before. So challenging the status quo, uh, 
Uh, and some people do that with facts and numbers and data and, you know, all those types of things. And some people just kind of, they poke the stick at the status quo. Why are we doing it this way? Why do we onboard people like this? Why do we, why do we not, you know, when we outplace people, why do we, why do we do it this way? I don't understand. Why is employer brand just on the recruiting side and not on the alumni side? Like true thought leadership is actually looking at the world and asking the question, why? Mm-hmm. And not looking at other people. The, the worst thing you can do is you, if you ever really truly want to kind of be, become a thought leader, which is a process in and of itself, um, you just don't read other people's stuff. Oh, interesting. You don't look at anybody else's stuff. You don't get, you don't, because what happens if you start reading other people's stuff, you, it, it gets into your head and you can't create your own unique ideas. Mm-hmm. And for you to be a thought leader, which again is a process, it's not a, it's not something that just happens overnight. You have to continue to do it. You got to do it on stage. You got to do it off stage. You got to do it when you one-on-one with people. You got to, you got to be able to say sometimes, sometimes the uncomfortable truths um, uh, in our industry, um, you know, like you've got to come right head on at some of the things that we all think is awkward, mm-hmm. you know, d- diversity hiring, you know, gender, gender uh, equity pay, you know, come at these things, biases in, in hiring, how they've been there forever and how they'll be there forever. Right. You know, like, like you've got to actually not read Matt Charney stuff and then have your take on Matt Charney stuff. That, that's not thought leadership. That will yeah. never be thought leadership. That's actually not reading Matt Charney until you've you know, formatted your own, formulated your own thought in your own bit. And, and then you can go read Matt Charney all day long because his, his stuff is wonderful. But, but I, I think if you want to be a thought leadership, it is a path, kind of like Don Quixote, you're going to wander around in the desert for a while. And you're going to have to really kind of come to grips with being alone and misunderstood. Mm-hmm. because no thought leader in any industry ever it does it as a, it's a team sport. It's, 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 it's singular uh, by nature. And, and secondly, this idea of mis- being misunderstood is you've got to say something that people confounds them mm-hmm. because it either confounds the logic or the, uh, the history or the way that we've always done things or whatever. It confounds them. It breaks them like, uh, intellectually, mm-hmm. and then and then then they have to kind of pick themselves and put themselves back up together, and you're going to be misunderstood in doing that. So when you do that to somebody or a crowd, and they're left going, "What just happened?" Then they're not going to blame themselves; they're going to blame you. And then at one point, it'll dawn on them, like, "Oh wow, now that Jennifer was right, she 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 was she had that right." I, I was thinking about that wrong. Mm-hmm. That's that's all it, thought leadership. It's it's, a, it's also a, a very thankless job. I would tell you. It seems like there are a lot of thankless jobs out there in the world today. <laughs> that's definitely one of them. That's definitely one of them. So you've obviously, um, through your work and your writing and your true thought leadership, have impacted a lot of people. Who who maybe are some of the people that have impacted you, whether that's personally or professionally or just in your life in general? Is there somebody that kind of pops to mind when you think of somebody that's been an impact maker in your life? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's probably, it's the similar people to, to, uh, to uh, the folks that you know, I would, I would say Jerk Gerstant, 
you know, Jason Lawrence and Jason Side and Lori uh, Rudiman, mm-hmm. Chris Dunn. Um, those are the people that probably know me the best, you know, from from afar, and can and can call me on my, you know, BS. Mm-hmm. You know, they they can they can they could poke a stick at me and go, yeah, that, come on, seriously. Are you really thinking that? Did you really say that? Are you really are you really trying to make that a thing? You know, those are the people that that I respect, and and it's it's a short list, and I, and I'll tell you why it's a short list. It's I I don't take this is going to sound so odd to people, but let me just I'll, I'll try to break it down. I don't take positive feedback well. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, "Hey, you did a great job." I, I actually think less of them. Oh, I'll make sure to say you did a terrible job every time from now on. <laughs> it's, it's, I know it's, it's, it is, this is a character fall, ladies and gentlemen. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely telling you not to do this. It's uh it's something hardwired in my childhood or whatever, but uh, I've already thought that thought. I've already deconstructed everything that I've done and I've already, I already know what I did well and what I didn't want to do well. And I don't need to, I, I absolutely don't need validation. Ever drives people crazy, especially my wife. But I know I don't. I need zero validation. Uh, I also need zero unsolicited anything. So, <laughs> so if I don't ask you your opinion on something, don't ever give it to me. There's just just keep it because I will delete it. I will think less of you. I will take IQ points away from you. Well, just it just goes badly. But there is a form of of criticism that I do like. And it's negative criticism, a solicited negative criticism. So when I get off stage and go, okay, Jennifer, give it to me straight. Just tell me, tell me what I did wrong. And you go, okay, there's the four things. One, two, three, four. I'm, I'm actually inventorying each one of those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to keep those in a place. And I'm going to go back through those uh, and use those. Uh, but that's unsolicited negative, or excuse me, solicited negative feedback. And feedback can only come in four forms. It's either positive, negative, it's either solicited or unsolicited. So that's it. So for most normal people, they like positive feedback, whether or not it's solicited or unsolicited, they like getting patted on the back. Hey man, you did a great job on that. That was awesome. You're great. You're awesome. You're, you know, you're the best, whatever. I, I don't like any of that <laughs> at all. You continue, Zero. you continue to amuse me and inspire me, Mr. <laughs> Tinkup. <laughs> it is a complete character flaw, uh, just like cursing. It's, it's, you know, I'm sure if I actually were to really dig into it, I'd probably find out why all that exists. Um, but, it, but it does exist. So when I, the, the, like the people you asked, that group of people of which you're, you're in, it, it's, if I ask you, I, I expect you'll tell me. I mean, I in fact, I know you'll tell me. Mm-hmm. If I ask Joe Gerstant, you know, what I did wrong, you know, in an article on stage or, you know, otherwise, he's going to tell me what I did wrong. And I can trust that. Well, it's good to have people around you that you can trust their feedback. That's right. So to, to personalize this, I hope it's okay. Um, you have two young boys, beautiful children, and a lovely wife. Uh, I assume like most parents, you want your boys to grow up to be happy, healthy, productive adults. What's the best advice that 
you either have given them or are giving them or the example that you're setting for them to try to put them on that path? You know, as a, as a father, uh, I grew up in an era, you know, my mom and dad are still alive, still married. So they just crossed over their 60th wedding anniversary and, uh, and they're both in their eighties. And, you know, my dad was of that era that he was, he was, he was the worker. Mom took care of the house, you know, kind of your, kind of your leave it to beaver type, type, type atmosphere. And, uh, you know, I can't remember him being that close, you know, because he was working all the time. You know, that was what was expected, you know, go work, bring money in. Um, so I, I tried to do that different. Mm-hmm. So I work out of the house. I see my kids every day, you know, when I'm not traveling, I see them every day, you know, I put them to bed, we pray at night, you know, like it's, it's a different bit because I'm in their lives. I see them, you know, and <laughs> I see them make all the crazy mistakes, you know, that I made. Uh, and, and boys are funny because, you know, they're, we're, we're kind of dumb until the age of 30. And then, and then at one point, the light bulb, hopefully it comes on. Um, you know, a girl's mature so, so, so much earlier. They're, they're wise earlier. Now, they have different problems. But, but with the little boys, the thing is, is being present. Mm-hmm. It's it, what's so hard with smartphones and, you know, with, with everything else we have going on is – you being present, but not being present, you know, being at the basketball game and staring at your phone the whole time. Um, and so the, that's one of the challenges um, of parenting today that that probably wasn't there before. The, the thing I'm working on with both boys is finding not just a passion, because I, I think that, that uh, some of that's a little overrated, uh, but finding something that you want to kind of commit to. You know, and you can you can control, you know, what you what you give to something. Mm-hmm. You might not be great at it, but you control your effort. <laughs> you know, you absolutely control your effort. And so, like with one son, Henry, he's kind of on the engineer path. He's a uh, you know you know really smart, loves computing. You know, just you can kind of already kind of see this is a kid that's going on becoming an engineer mm-hmm. okay, or something like that, a professor, you know, something with physics, whatever. And with Van, he, he kind of likes some of that stuff, but he really loves sports. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like finding something that you're interested in and then going, give it effort, give it effort and give it effort, give it more effort, you know, try, 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 train, 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 practice, practice, practice. Because really, if they learn how to do that with one thing, then they can learn how to do that with another. Sure. It's that effort. That could, how do you control effort? How do you give it your all? Um, I didn't have to learn that because my dad, I mean, I, I think it was, you know, my dad, you know, he could, he could drive in a four inch nail with one hit. Like he, he's that strong, work that hard. And so working became Work ethic was easy for us. All three of the boys, uh, and uh, you know, my, my brothers and myself, work ethic was easy for us because of our father. Mm-hmm. And and they kind of get work ethic for me because I work pretty hard. But it's it's different. Like I'm I'm in the garage. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a little different. I'm not like 
I don't want a satchel and I don't go to a, you know, I don't go to work every day. So there's, you know, I gotta, I gotta show them what work ethic is, but really what I'm focused on is, is really teaching them about effort and about how you, you know, give it your all. Like we watched the basketball game last night, Van and I, of these uh, sixth graders and they were diving for the ball. I mean, these kids were playing, you know, defense in a way, you know, they're pressing and they were, you know, kids were going for the ball. And he looked at me and goes, they're really a craze in second grade. He's like, they're really aggressive. I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of how the game's played. Mm-hmm. That's how, that's how you, that's, that's effort. They're giving their effort. What separates the good players from the bad that's players. Right. That's right. Not so good players. So that's what I'm trying to work on with both of them. Well, that's great advice. So you took a a varied and non-traditional path to get to where you are today. Um, you probably come across lots of um, young professionals, mid-career professionals, old older professionals, people all across the perspective who, if they had the chance to ask you, let's say they were unhappy in their current role, you've, you've been in a couple of places where you felt the need to change. They sense a need for change, but they don't really see a way out, whether that's a mortgage or kids or family or traditionally held beliefs about what's right or wrong. What advice would you give them? Well, this would be, uh, you know, not esoteric. I've had uh, three near death experiences in two years. So 2005 and 2016, I, I literally came inches from death three times. And I don't really advertise them, uh, but, but it does frame your reality in a way that life's too short. So if it's a mortgage, well, sell the house. You know, if your kids are in private school and they got to go to public school, okay, well, then that's what it's got to be. Because we're all worm dirt sooner than we think. And uh, if you're miserable, now that's that's the thing. Is it tolerable, uh, or are you miserable? Like if you're if you're it's Saturday and you're already dreading work on Monday, change your job. Change your job. Life's too short. Mm-hmm. Like just get out of it. And 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 you know, I mean, it, it's tadament to uh, an 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 abusive relationship. Sure. You know, it's not the exact same thing, of course. But it's, it's similar in that you can stay and hope that things change, which in, a, in an abusive relationship, they almost never do. Uh, and I would say in a bad job or bad manager, they almost never do. Or you can change your own outcome, and which is not easy. It's not easy for battered women, and it's not easy for jobs that suck. So there's nothing easy about it, but I think if you look at the backdrop, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or whatever, the backdrop is you could literally be dead tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's just, that's life. And it, and it, and it's, and it happens, and, then, and when it happens, <laughs> you, know, uh, you, you, you know, you don't want to be stuck in a job that, is sucking life from you uh, because you don't have that much life to give. Mm-hmm. And so the best advice I, I would give those people is, okay, you don't have to rip the bandaid off, you know, on Tuesday, like let's, let's build a plan. All right. So what's the plan? 
okay, you want to, you, you want to, you know, okay, you want to get another position. You like the company, but you don't like your boss. Okay. Well, can you get your boss fired? <laughs> can, you, can you can you plant drugs on them? Can you uh, can you get them promoted? I've even I've even talked to people about like take their resume and put it on every job board, and 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 get the <laughs> non traditional like, advice from Mr. William Tinkum. <laughs> like this is like I this is the advice I give people. They say, "Hey, I have a bad manager. I love the job. I love the values. Like everything's great, but my boss is just heinous." Um, I, that's what I tell them. I'm like, Hey, you got a couple different things. Either you move. Okay. But if you don't want to move, well then you either get your boss promoted. Like you do everything in your power to make them look so good that the company could, does something else with them. That's one option. Or you get them fired. You go the other route. Like they've done something wrong. Find out and find out is in hire a private investigator, do something, you know, plant drugs on them. <laughs> um, or you literally take their resume and submit it to every job board on the planet. This is advice I never would have come up with on my own. <laughs> and guess what? All of a sudden, they start getting headhunter calls. They start getting recruiter calls. And then they come to you and go, oh, my God, I have this amazing opportunity in San Francisco. I think I'm going to take it. And you're there going, well, that's fascinating. <laughs> that's <laughs> Good for you. Hold on. Let me let me give you a golf clap. That is awesome. <laughs> you do you. And please, for the love of Christ, if you could leave today, that'd be great. Um, but if you can't, but if you can't do that, and you got to get out, make a plan, work the plan. Work you know, the plan. plan. You know, it's it goes back to that old cliche and and project management. Plan the work, work the plan. I love it. And you and you get out. Uh, and, and make and you, the most of things, right? Yep. Make, make the most of whatever life you have left. Thanks for sharing that. So today, if we don't want to page through 10 pages of Google <laughs> results, where's the best place to find and connect with William Tincup, the one and only? Well, probably Twitter, you know, the easiest. I mean, my, my email is just William at tincup.com. So, I mean, there's that, but, uh, but Twitter, I respond to everything on Twitter. And you are at Ten Cup or at William Ten Cup? At William Ten Cup. At William Ten Cup. Easy to find. Easy, easy to find. Easy to find. I make well, it I, easy for fun. I appreciate the opportunity to catch up with you. It's always sure. a pleasure. I enjoy the way you make me think and the way that you live your life. So thanks, William, for being here with me today. Absolutely. And look forward to continuing to learn from you in the future. Vice versa. Vice versa. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thanks. It's time for you to get noticed, create change, and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.